Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Freaking first cut. Golly! Welcome into a very special First Cut podcast. We have a new Masters champion, Greg Ducharme, Kyle Porter. I'm Rick Gaiman. Let's jump right into this, boys. KP, you're on site. You saw it happen. John Rahm will be donning a green jacket and will be forever etched into history. What a week. It's been an unbelievable week. Uh, <laughs> Listen, the the Rom stuff is uh, it's extraordinary. He he was so good over thirty holes, and you know Kepka Kepka didn't come at him at all, and that was a little disappointing. You wanted kind of a showdown between two great champions there, uh, but Rom Rom's the man. You know, to to win a U.S. Open and a Masters is is big boy stuff. Think about the guys that have done that recently. The last fifteen years, this is off the top of my head, so I have no idea if it's accurate, but I'm pretty sure. It's only Spieth and DJ that have won a Masters in a U.S. Open since Angel Cabrera did it back in 2008, 2009 era. So it's a it's a pretty big boy club to win a U.S. Open and a Masters. And uh, man, I I don't. This is probably like getting out over my skis. But I think Rom might be the new Kepka in that I think every major is is kind of going to run through him for the next several years. You know, guys, I had a little bit of a hard time hearing Kyle there. So if I repeat anything that you said there, KP, I, I apologize. But um, this was a pretty surprising turn of events in this event for me. Um, it, you know, it looked like it was Kepka the whole way. And things really started to turn uh, on and around the greens. Uh, these guys are, are two of the best ball strikers. Kepka at least was showing that this week. They're two of the best ball strikers that we have in the game. The big, heavy hitters um, going head-to-head. But the thing it really came down to was clutch putting and short game. And and John Rom for me this week was clutch when it came to those putts on the greens that he had to have. And it started all the way this morning. Uh, he had numerous putts early in the day, starting at number seven for that two-shot swing. Uh, putts at eight and nine as well that were inside that 10-foot make zone, and he made them all. And then as the fourth round started, he got right to it again on number one. So the, the putting for me was a huge difference for John Rahm. Uh, it's something that, that catapulted him to his victory in the U.S. Open a couple of years ago as well. And when he has the putter rolling, he's very difficult to beat. But it, it's, it's beyond just the putting stroke. It's beyond what you see in the statistics out of John Rahm. It comes down to that competitive edge, uh, that, that fierce competitor that is John Rahm stepping up and, and uh, stepping up with a clutch performance. Yeah, we've got to talk about specific shots and all these uh, players in the chase pack and a long day of golf, but obviously fleeting daylight out there at Augusta National KP. So let's zoom out a little bit and look at this from a, a historical standpoint, going from zero major championships to one, a huge deal going from one to two, obviously a completely different story. And oh, by the way, uh, now you get to play this event for the rest of your life. 
Yeah, it's 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 a massive deal. And I think, you know, the thing that we've talked about a lot, Rick, and I've been just screaming at you guys about this for the last five years, is that Rom's going to have a year where he wins seven times with two majors. And I don't know if that's going to be this year. It might be. It looks like it's going to be. Uh, but that's the type of uh, historically great player, uh, you know, that he is. And I think I think people are just kind of coming around to the fact that he's been probably the best player in the world, second best player in the world for the last eight years now, since he was 20, 21. That's, that's the level that he plays at. And now his major championship total uh, kind of matches what I think is his uh, kind of statistical floor. So... Uh, by the way, one more thing before I go. I got to run. It's getting dark. We got to get out of here. <laughs> and um, uh, last thing, I think, and you guys can discuss this, talk about it, whatever. I think that the Masters is the one place, maybe not the one place, but the 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 best place to kind of overshadow all the other nonsense we've been talking about for the last year or so. And I think that's what you saw this week. This weekend was very, very meaningful in a way that didn't include Live or the PJ Tour or anything like that at all. It was just, hey, what does uh, uh, what does what does the history of um, this event and the context of John Rahm and Brooks Kepka mean? And I thought that was uh, I thought that was a pretty cool outcome after uh, just all the nonsense of the last year. Yeah, certainly a very special week every year, but felt a little bit different this time around as well. This conversation is far from over. We're going to say thank you, Kyle Porter, and uh, get you get you inside over there. We'll continue this conversation after a few words. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back here on the First Cut podcast with plenty more to discuss. Round four at the Masters in the books. Greg Ducharme joining me here. And Greg, it was it was a long day of golf. We had to resume the third round this morning. So players were back in place at 8.30 a.m. local time for that resumption of play. And then, of course, flip it right over into round four. So we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, the big item before anything happened today is that Tiger Woods withdrew from the Masters. So uh, he released a statement. He had finished, I believe, seven holes of, of round three, and he released a statement that it's actually the plantar fasciitis that was uh, acting up again, and he thought it was not worth gutting it out for another 20-something-odd holes. Well, you could see this. And, Rick, this is something we discussed uh, on last night's episode of The First Cut and uh, even on Friday night as well. The pain that Tiger was going through was evident. It was clear. It was cold. It was rainy. Uh, everything that's oh, and by the way, extremely hilly. So all the things that are bad for Tiger, all the things that we typically look at as presenting challenges for Tiger, came together this week. So it's no surprise that uh, that that he withdrew. It was difficult to watch. Uh, I'm I'm glad he did for himself because that just looked to be such a high level of pain. Um, and, you know, the other thing I think we learned after the Genesis Invitational and, and hearing from Joey LaCava this time between the Genesis Invitational and this event, 
This was a really difficult recovery for Tiger Woods. This was not something like we typically see where, well, he gets a little bit stronger. He gets a little better. And after a week of recovery, all of a sudden Tiger's uh, back to where he was before he started the first event. He definitely took a downturn when it comes to his physical health. And so the longer he, he prolongs this agony to get through this event, the more difficult it's going to be for him to continue to uh, climb back up the mountain. So this was a, a really disappointing situation for me, Rick. And um, I got to be honest, it, it worries me for the long term because now we're after the Genesis. I felt pretty good about Tiger going forward. And now I'm, I'm at the op- the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah, certainly a lot more questions and not many answers to go along with it in terms of Tiger Woods and his future and whether we're going to see him at uh, the next major championship or, or anywhere in between now and then. So that that news was before play resumed on Sunday morning. And then immediately we knew there was a very high leverage moment that was going to happen right at the restart. We talked about it last night. Uh, John Rahm on the seventh hole had a putt for birdie. Brooks Kepka had a slightly longer putt for par and we teased this Greg we said you know if Brooks misses his putt and John Rahm makes his immediately out of the gate you're gonna have a two-shot swing sure enough that came to fruition and it was a little bit of foreshadowing for what was to come for the rest of the day Yes, it absolutely was. And it was a big moment, not just because it was a two-shot swing, Rick, but this is one of those situations where we talk about it all the time in match play. We talk about it all the time in Ryder Cups and President's Cups. The the saying is, first in wins. The guy who makes the putt first is going to win the hole. So Brooks Kepka being outside of John Rahm in that scenario had a really big opportunity. And if he if he holds that putt, uh, it puts a completely new pressure on John Rahm where all of a sudden he feels like he has to make this putt to reduce the lead from four down to down to three. Uh, when Kepka misses and Rom makes, all of a sudden John Rom is off to the races. Uh, he gets going on his on his front foot, as as you say. And the momentum was all his. And he carried it on with big putt after big putt um very early in the end of that third round. He carried that momentum seemingly all day long, Greg. And the anti-momentum I don't know what the opposite of, of momentum is or the negative momentum for Brooks Kepka seemed to hang around all day Kepka could just not find it he he finished uh, round three with a 73 he would spoiler alert shoot a 75 in the final round and there was a point before we resumed play Sunday morning that Brooks Kepka was already at 13 under par Greg 12 under won the golf tournament so like that that's where we were and Kepka couldn't keep the wheels on yes and and you know it's one thing to say or in the early going in the conclusion of that third round the conditions were extremely difficult and this is something that Brooks Kepka hadn't faced in the first two rounds and when he started his third round, you know, he he only played six holes yesterday uh, and he, he played great, but a lot of that had to do with his scrambling. He was getting up and down a lot and, and he was making those difficult par saves. Uh, but all of a sudden Sunday morning feels a little bit different. And then the weather turned 
But by the time the weather turned, Brooks Kepka was in a completely different state of mind. Uh, his his game was in a different place. He didn't look as sharp with his full swing. He had a couple of errant tee shots. Uh, but the the biggest thing, the biggest difference for Brooks Kepka was was what happened with a short game. And Rick, I, I got a couple of notes here on his scrambling. Uh, in round one, he was four for four in scrambling. In round two, he was six for seven in scrambling. In round three which included some of the play this morning. He was 10 for 12. Today, he's 3 for 10 in scrambling in round four. Uh, that is that is a huge fall off. Um, and perhaps it's a sign of conditions, but I mean, what do you think, Rick? Uh, that sounds like pressure to me. Uh, it certainly sounds like pressure. I mean, and it's something that we learn as the week goes on at Augusta National. Being able to get up and down becomes even more and more valuable. We kind of saw Scotty Scheffler lean on that aspect of his game in 2022 in route to victory. And this just was just completely abandoned Brooks Kepka today. The other thing, and, and Greg, you know, you have the scrambling numbers, so that's the percentage of time that he's getting up and down. Do you think that that was more because of uh, his ability to or inability to chip it close or pitch it close? or do you think it was the flat stick that kind of caused him the most trouble? Uh, uh, if you look at the numbers and you look at the data, it will say it's the short game. Uh, but when you watch it, I, I didn't think he <laughs> <Yeah>. hit terrible <laughs> pitch shots, right? I, I thought he hit a number of really, you know, pretty good, pretty good pitch shots. And earlier in the week, Brooks Kepko was making those putts. So uh, uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. It seemed to me like it was the putts in that six to eight foot range that really plagued him. I thought he kind of lost his speed control a little bit. I thought uh, there were a couple putts uh, in round four that he left a, a, not woefully short, but short enough where you start scratching your head. And when you start losing the speed on these greens, obviously uh, that's obviously going to impact line. And I just, I just, I don't think he misread all of those putts. I think his speed control was a little bit off something that he was really great with over the course of his first two or two and a half rounds. And it just kind of a abandoned him the rest of the way. But I will say um, it, it was, really fun to have Brooks Kepka in contention at a major championship again, right? Whether he's playing the villain or whether he's playing the guy that, you know, I'm personally rooting for because I had him in our in our one and done. Like it, it's cool to have him back. It was it was disappointing that he went out with a whimper as opposed to a roar. Well, you know, this was the thing um, when when Kyle left us, he talked about how the Masters is a place where we could really just focus on the golf. Uh, and I enjoyed focusing on the golf this week. And I've been saying this for a really long time on the First Cut podcast and everywhere to anybody who's listened to me when I talk about Brooks Kepka, I love the I love Brooks Kepka the competitor. I love watching him play in big tournaments. I love the way he handles himself in big moments. I think it's a really unique talent in our sport. Um, so the live stuff, all, all of that other stuff is kind of a distraction to me, but when push comes to shove and Brooks Kepka's in the arena, he's fierce and, and he, he elevates his game. He's one of the rare players who has a tendency of elevating their game when the pressure gets the highest. So that added another big element to the drama today when he has a four shot lead, starting Sunday's golf, which of course includes some around three, it, it, it doesn't look like there's a very good chance for John Rahm or anybody else to catch him. Uh, and and this was a, quite frankly, a, a surprise, even though there have been a lot of questions about Brooks's game, just because we haven't seen him in the competitive arena as much lately. 
Well, let's talk about our 2023 Masters champion. It is indeed John Rahm. He goes out, he makes that birdie putt at the start of play on Sunday in his third round on seven. He birdies eight and he rarely looks back, Greg. He did make some bogeys, but every time he made a bogey, he was able to bounce back. If you look at what he did in his final round, it was a three under 69. And then by the time we got to the second nine and it was seemingly uh all he had to do was play defense and play smart golf he did just that it was fairways and greens all the way home and at the end of the day he puts on a green jacket yeah he he drove the ball really well um and that that was another advantage he had over brooks kepka and that's something once you get the lead that becomes really important so I, I kind of broke this down into a couple areas for me when it comes to john rom first and foremost his back was against the wall uh, from seven green. His back was against the wall on eight and on nine. Um, you remember on eight, Brooks Kepka gets up and down for birdie and hit it in there close. And John Rahm had to make a big putt to answer. But then once he took control of the lead, once he finally took control of the lead, he was able to play really smart shots. He put the ball in play off the tee and hit the right shot into the greens. And you think about what he did on this second nine today. This is the area where you always worry about leaders losing to Masters. And uh, at number 10, he hit the right shot. At 11, he hit a very conservative but a very smart shot into the green. Same thing at 12. Same thing at 13, getting it past that, uh, past the tributary to Ray's Creek there. Um, he hit a great, a very smart, a very wise shot into 15 um, with by laying up and the subsequent wedge shot. He played the perfect shot into 16. I mean, you go through the entire back nine with the exception of number 18 because of the tee shot. He played uh, a perfect round of golf, a perfect nine holes when it comes to strategy. And you can't do that if you're chasing. When you're chasing, you have to take on some of those penalty areas. You have to take on the water to try to make something happen. Uh, but when you're leading, you don't have to do that. It, now, that doesn't make it easy. It just it, it means you can play a, a little more conservative. And if you execute the shots, well, you end up with, a uh, you know, an invitation back here for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you get to play and you get to plan the dinner uh, on Tuesday of, of, of next year, which is uh, yeah. which is going to be awesome. Let, let me put this a little bit into, into perspective, Greg. So the, the final leaderboard is going to say that this was a four shot victory for John Robb uh, at 12 under par. He made a double on his first hole out of the gate, four putts. So he played his last 71 holes at 14 under. He also played in by far the worst conditions of like anybody this week, or at least his wave did. There's a chance, or in some alternate, you know, universe, that John Rahm, you know, we talk about the real lead all the time, that he really won this golf tournament by like six, seven, or eight shots. <laughs> And and then even after what happened at number one, Rick, I mean, think about what he did on the par fives or um, in, in round three, right? I mean, the, the second nine, both those par fives, he is unable to, he makes a bogey. He three putts mm -hmm. 13 uh, and he three putts 15 for par. So he, he plays those holes one over par. I mean, that could have been a whole lot better. And what happened on the greens was a little, I mean, he had, he had five, three putts for the week. You don't see a lot of that. I guess it was four, three putts and a, and a four putt. Um, but, right. but that is impressive. I wanted to ask you this. Does, does that four putt double at number one, 
and winning the golf tournament remind you of anything? I'll give you a hint. It's uh, it's somewhat recent on the PGA Tour, not in a major, not a Masters. Tom Kim? Yes, Tom Kim. Tom Kim. Yeah. Tom Kim <laughs> making a quad on his opening hole and winning. Yeah. Hey, I, I guess that's all you got to do is you just got to like slap yourself in the face right out of the gate so that you're focused and then you go and win a golf tournament. Easy, yeah, easy I mean, solution. Rory did it in, in the tour championship too. He made double at number one and and caught Scotty Scheffler. That's right. It It's a really, it's a funny thing in this game. I would never advocate for starting with a double, <laughs> uh, a triple or a quad, but uh, I guess if there's a time when you're going to do it, the first hole is probably the best time. Uh, I'll tell you what, and this is obviously very anecdotal, but you know, I, we've been lucky enough or, uh, you know, we had the, we had the setup in Phoenix and I was out at Riviera and Torrey Pines. And like, I, I've, I've watched a lot of John Rahm this year, Greg, and he is very different than everybody else on the golf course. You know, even the other elite players in the world, some of them you can tell are um, maybe looking around or maybe, t- you know, having engaging in conversation with players and caddies and whatnot. I swear John Rahm is the scariest dude in the world on the golf course, and he will just walk right through. Like, you don't exist on the golf course. And I feel like when he makes double out of the gate, it, it, it just, like, amplifies his spidey senses, and he just, like, gets into this mode where he is just not he is not to be messed with, and he just takes over. It, it's really hard to describe it. I'll tell you, there were, um, you know, a couple of years ago, th- this is the first time I saw John Rahm in person. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of the Florida guys in person, uh, the uh, John Rahm, I had never seen in person before. And I was out at the Northern trust on the range at Liberty national. And I was facing the other way. And I heard this noise that I, I've never heard before. It was a completely different noise. And I was, I was uh, taken aback by it. And I turn around and John Rahm is down at the other end of the range. I mean, he must've been 40 yards away from me and he's hitting these irons that sound, I've, I've never heard anything like it. I've watched Tiger Woods hit a lot of golf balls from very close range. That sounds different. When John Rahm hits it, it's, it, it was shocking. That's the, that's the only way I can explain it. And, and then you're right. He walks, he walks by you and you don't know what to do. It's so nerve-wracking. But what was really yeah, he, cool about today, Rick, is the second scariest guy to see on the on the range is I know. Brooks Kepka. <laughs> when they were they were staring at so they were on the tee at 16 waiting for the Cantlay Hovland group to to get off and Hovland or and Cantlay was doing his whole thing and those two were staring I I I, I was uncomfortable through my television with those two staring at at Patrick Cantlay 160 yards away. <laughs> I I would not want to play in the group in front of them. <laughs> You're at risk of them hitting India because they're long enough to, no matter what. But if you if there's any sense that you're holding them up, there's there's no two there's there's not a worse duo to have behind you because those guys are angry and they are intimidating. A uh, couple other things here on John Rom before we get to some of the chase pack because there was a lot of craziest uh, craziness throughout the day. So we've talked about this a lot on on this pod. John Rom's season last year was very disappointing he had one win the only win that he had was the mexico open he was like three and a half to one to win that so even when he won it nobody really gave him any credit for it and when you look at it from a historical statistical standpoint greg he was he had an elite 
off the tee year. He gained over a stroke off the tee, and he was like the 12th or 13th golfer to ever do that in a season. And he got the absolute least out of it of any other guy who drove it like he did. So I think there was this perception for us that he was going to snap back at some point. There was going to be a rubber band situation. He was running under expectation, and I think we are starting to see that now. The win at the Spanish Open, the win at the DP World Tour Championship in Dubai, then he starts his 2023 year with the Tournament of Champions, the American Express, Riviera, and the Masters. Yeah, I, I think the pendulum has swung, Greg. Yes, and you know why did he struggle last year so much? Well, it was, it was really the short game and the putting. Those, these were the two areas of concern. The putting got a lot of attention last year uh, because he hit the ball so well. And, but over time, once we kind of got past Masters, he really started to turn it around from a statistical standpoint with the putting. But he never really recovered in the short game. And as we've seen him develop really after the Tour Championship, when you look at what he did on the DP World Tour and in these early events of of 2023, that stuff started to change. And all of a sudden, we started to see John Rahm that looked like the John Rahm that's you know pitching in uh, from the left side of number 13 at the Memorial. Right, This is a, a player with an elite short game. Uh, when you look at it from a really wide lens, but last year was a struggle. And now uh, it seems like it's back. And you look at what he did again this week. Uh, he he answered that question in a big way. He led the field in scrambling this week. Uh, he was sixth in strokes gain around the green. And that was a huge factor in why he is the champion. Um, and, then, and then the other thing I'd say, Rick, is the driving at the beginning of this year has been a little inconsistent. So if we narrow the view and look at maybe the last month or so, John Rahm was not the favorite coming in here. He was well behind Scotty Scheffler and Rory McIlroy as far as expectations are concerned. Uh, and I would attribute that largely to the driving ability. But over the past five years, or since John Rahm's been on the PGA Tour, he's never been outside the top five in strokes gain off the tee for a season, which is just incredible. It's hard to imagine. This year, he's been struggling. But what's he do this week? He... He leads the field in strokes gain off the tee until, you know, through 71 holes. He ended up getting clipped by Cam Young uh, because his, his tee shot didn't make it to the fairway on 18. Oh, yeah. We didn't even mention that. He uh, has to hit a provisional on the 72nd hole because he <laughs> yanks one left, but it bounces out uh, short of the short of the fairway and he's able to make make no problems of it from there. Um couple other things here. I guess just one other thing that I think we'd be remiss to, to not mention on on John Rahm. Uh, he is a historian of the game. I think I think Rory McIlroy, uh, and deservingly so, gets a lot of credit for understanding the history of the game and his place in it. And I think that John Rahm, um, I, for whatever reason, does not get enough credit for how much he understands the history of the game. And today is April Ninth, and that is Seve Day in 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 the world of golf. It's it would have been Seve Ballesteros's uh, 66th birthday. Obviously, growing up, uh, John Rahm idolizing Seve. Uh, now trying to you know surpass him in terms of major championships won by a Spanish golf. I mean, there's just there's just so much lineage here and and so much um, connection for this day that you know Rom used as fuel, used as an opportunity to say. I'm destined for this. I'm going to go out and win this golf tournament. Yeah, you know that he's aware of it. Uh, and quite yeah. frankly, it, it wouldn't surprise me if he knew who won the Masters the last time Sunday was in April 9th. 
Uh, and that that would be another Spaniard, Sergio Garcia. So it's it's pretty cool what kind of connection and lineage we have in the uh, Spanish golf community at the highest level. Um, you know, another nugget that I heard Jim Nance mention on the broadcast was uh, when when Jose Maria won his first Masters, he was also 28 years old, just like John Rahm. Um, so there there is definitely that big connection. John Rahm's knowledge and awareness of history is. I mean, it, it may be better than Rory's. It's it's right up there. He he knows his stuff, uh, and it seems like every time he wins, there's a a historical connection, and and he teaches me something in the interviews. And he's supposed to be out there playing. I'm supposed to be studying, and it seems like it's the other way around sometimes. Uh, April 9th, four nine. Also, the number that Adam Hayes wore on his caddy bib this oh, week, yeah. number forty nine. Yeah, yeah, how cool, cool is that? Very cool stuff. A uh, lot more to talk about here. So, uh, it, it the top of the board lacked a little bit of drama by the time we got mostly into round four. It seemed like John Rahm was in pretty uh, strong control of his game. Brooks Kepka was obviously going in the wrong direction, but there was a pairing of Jordan Spieth and Phil Mickelson that was going ham, Greg. I mean, it was anything you can do, I can do better. They were thir- they got to 13 under par combined uh, for for this pairing. They ended up there, and it, it took Spieth to, to bogey uh, 18, or, or, or it could have been better. But these two were going back and forth, two Masters champions showing what can be done at Augusta National on a Sunday. Yeah, it's amazing when when the weather turns, you get a little sunshine. <laughs> all of a sudden, these guys uh, stand out. But what amazes me about this is every year at Augusta National, there are a select few players, and they, and they don't all show up at the same time every year. But we always seem to get this group of players who understand how to play this golf course. Uh, they they show up on a on a Sunday, whether they have a chance to win or not. And it's a really special day for him. And you could see, I mean, how you could see how much fun Jordan Spieth was having. You could see how much fun Phil Mickelson was having. They loved taking on the shots that they had to take on today. And, and it felt like they were pushing each other. It felt like it was a, a mano a mano battle. It, it almost felt like a, you know, a, a singles match play event in a, in a Ryder cup, which was really cool to watch. Um, and, and they are so similar in their style as well. You know, Kyle was tweeting about this earlier, and I couldn't agree more. They're a little wild off the tee. They're phenomenal iron players. Part of the reason why they have such great success here. Um, imaginative and unbelievable, legendary short games. Uh, and then they're maybe a little unpredictable on the greens. But today was one of those days where they were putting the ball in play for the most part, uh, and they were attacking flag sticks. And, um, you know, both of them probably could have shot even lower. You have a 65 out of Phil, 66 out of Jordan, and they probably, at least for Jordan, it, it probably pretty easily could have gotten down to 63. Uh, and and for Phil, he probably feels like it could have gotten down to 63 as well. Yeah, let's start with Phil here. So it's going to be a T2, a, a phenomenal finish. I, I owe Phil a uh, golf clap because there was no universe in which I thought Phil Mickelson was going to have much success this week considering the way that he played at the end of his PGA Tour career and his very lackluster results on live golf thus far. But there is either something about Phil or something about this place 
Greg, where experience goes a long way. And I swear, I have, I didn't hear Phil Mickelson say any other words all week long except be right, be right. He said it a couple times on Sunday afternoon because he was hunting down flag sticks. You know, there is there is definitely a style of player uh, that that seems to drive with this golf course. Uh, and and they seem to be players who curve the ball a lot in many in many respects. Not everybody who's had success here fits this mold, but it's almost like a, a player like Phil Mickelson feels here like he has room. And when he has room, his imagination takes over. Uh, his his visual commitment to a shot gets to a, a completely different level. And all of a sudden, the ball is is going to do something when it lands. And, and he doesn't have to land it right on the flag stick like a dart. He can land it on the edge of a slope that's 10, 15 feet away and feed it down to the flag. And he knows where those spots are. And I think that's a really big advantage for him. And you think about players like Fred Couples, uh, who, who made the cut here this week, became the oldest player to ever make a cut. H- how does Fred Couples beat Rory McIlroy in the game of golf? And Justin Thomas, you know, it it doesn't add up. But this place brings something out in a, in a select few very special players. And, and Phil Mickelson absolutely fits that mold. Uh, and lastly, Rick, I, I also think it's very clear that Phil is working working pretty hard on his game. I you know, I don't think he's um because his schedule is limited on live. I I don't think he's just hung it up. Looks like he's working very hard on his body and I would imagine um he's working very hard on his golf game. I also think there was part of him that wanted to say, "Hey, uh let me show you what I what I can still do out here. All the things yeah. that that you people have said about me for the last 18 months or whatever it's been." Uh Justin Wright had a great little nugget. So so Phil Mickelson has shot a 65 at the Masters before. He's done it. It was before Tiger Woods turned pro. Think about that. Phil's wow. last two Last two 65s at Augusta National, 9,860 days apart. Tiger has been a professional for 9,719 days. That the, uh, the, the, the greatest thing about Phil Mickelson has always been and will always be his longevity. Right. You know, he didn't start winning prolifically, especially majors, until much later in his career. The PGA championship over the age of 50, the the consistency of his official world golf rankings, the the legacy for Phil off the golf course will be determined. Who knows in the next 10 or 15 years, the legacy on the golf course for Phil Mickelson, Greg, is longevity. And there's no one else probably in our game that could ever, ever match that. You know, the only uh, the only player who comes to mind for me would be like a Vijay Singh uh, with all sure. the success that Vijay Singh had after the age of 40. Uh, but it didn't include a major championship. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you, Rick. Phil's Phil's longevity is really impressive. And I, I think it goes back to effort, the attention that he's put into his body and his health and his nutrition. And I mean, these are going back to things he said when he won the PGA at nearly 51 years of age. Hey, hey, I I can't eat the way that I want to eat. I, it it takes a little bit more effort for me to get myself in shape, uh, and it affects my focus on the golf course, uh, which is another thing that he has had to work really hard on. And I do believe that what Augusta National asks for makes it easier for Phil to focus because there's so much going on in every single shot, and every single shot has so much 
uniqueness to it, whether it's the unevenness of the lie, uh, the very the the slopes on the green around the whole location, the shape of the hole on the tee shot. I, I think all these things just captivate Phil, um, and and that's why. Uh, you know, and in, in, in addition to the distance that he's maintained, and that's why he's able to compete here. And it's uh, it's really it, it's something special to watch. The other man in that pairing, Jordan Spieth, um, you know, we were pretty bullish on Spieth leading into this event as as we should be. He'd been playing a lot better. Uh, he's obviously had such great success at Augusta National. He's actually going to defend next week at the RBC Heritage. But it was a vintage Sunday Spieth because it was only six pars on the card, card Greg. Two quick birdies out of the gate. He made a couple of bogeys at four and six. He rattled off three in a row, eight, nine, and ten. Three circles there. I mean, th- this was just like I was feeling. If I think if if they would have let Jordan Spieth play twenty two holes today, he would have won. He would have won a second green jacket. Oh man, he was he was going crazy. And again, this this shot you're seeing right here at fourteen. This is exactly why Phil and Jordan have so much success to me here. Because they can, yeah. they can see that opportunity. They can see where they have to land it, and it's not right at the flagstick. So they, they don't look at this in a linear way. They, they see the game in a in a completely different light on this canvas, uh, and it, and it brought things to life for Jordan Spieth today. I mean, so many of these hole locations that he made birdie on. You think about where nine is. There are there's a slope long and left. You can feed it into uh, the the whole location at number two on the right hand side. You can feed it down from left. You play away from the hole and feed it towards it. Uh, you look at fourteen. We just saw that one uh, on camera here. Um, you look at seventeen. He, seventeen. He had a great shot in there. But the point is, there's so much creativity that's required. And I don't think there's any two in the game that are more creative than uh, than than Phil and Jordan speak. Maybe there are some that are kind of up there in that echelon, but these would be my top two. Uh, there are only three instances of a golfer since 1983. That's when we started tracking, I think, the hole-by-hole birdie numbers to make nine or more birdies in the final round at the Masters. Three instances of that. Jordan Spieth did it today. Jordan Spieth also did it in 2018, and then David Toms did it in 1998. So three instances ever. Jordan Spieth has two of them in the last wow. five years. I, you know, he he love he just loves he loves it. It's got to be those whole locations. I, I wish he could just dial that up a little earlier in the week, so that this kind of performance isn't to come in tied fourth, right? To finish yeah. five shots back. It, but the amazing thing is he made nine birdies today, and I feel like he left a lot out there. I, like I said, at least three. I think he left at least three shots out there. And and then you, I'm, I'm forced to think back to what he did on Thursday and the yeah. decision he makes from the pine straw on number 13 to go for the green in two. And he ends up hitting it into the the water short of the green, and it makes six. And you, you start to add these little tiny decisions up. You start to see how a tournament like this unfolds and you realize that you you have to take a little bit of a different tact early in the week. You can't take on risk like that. You shoot yourself out of the tournament on Thursday. You end up fin- finishing tied fourth. It just it leaves me wondering what could have been. 
So, Greg, it was a phenomenal week. Obviously, I'm sure we're going to spend the next days, weeks, and months talking about this Masters and all of the ramifications that are coming out of it. But there's a lot of ramifications for us, my friend, in our one and done. So for those who are uninitiated, we put out our picks every single week. We've been tracking this. And Greg, as you can imagine, in a major $18 million in the purse, there was a lot. There was some, some decent movement this week. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, I find myself feeling rather disappointed again after uh, an event with a really big purse. You're probably feeling disappointed. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, Sunday, I, uh, make, Sunday probably costs you more than anybody else, and you probably—I don't—did anybody have Rom? I mean, you probably had the best finish of anybody. Yeah, so here we go. Here are the updated uh, standings as we look at the the payouts for the tournament here. And uh, for us, Sia and the fans were were the big losers. So Sia Dejad and the fans went with Rory McIlroy. That gets you exactly zero dollars because Rory misses the cut. Let's see. Kyle M had seventy-five thousand from J Day. What happened to J Day? He he really coughed it up late in this thing. Yeah, he, yeah, he plummeted today. Absolutely brutal. Uh, Patrick and Greg both got 432000 So Patrick had Xander. Uh, you, Greg, had Scotty Scheffler. That's 432000 So he made you a little bit of money. Mm. Yeah, that, you know. Not good enough. It's better than what I did with Scotty last year. Last year, I played Scotty at the PGA, and he got me zero. Uh, so I seem to have some bad luck with him, but I feel like everybody else has added a zero to the total that I earned from Scotty this week. It seems like everybody else picked him in one of the multiple designated events he decided to win this year. <laughs> uh, Mark, Mark, and Kyle both had Jordan Spieth, so that that nine birdies that we talked about made them a lot of money, seven hundred forty-four thousand. I was sitting pretty for a very long time with Brooks Kepka. He did not get the three point two that John Rahm did, but he got one point five million. So I have now gotten within sniffing distance of Mark. I'm just seven hundred thousand dollars behind. So I'm feeling quite proud of myself. You should. Um, we're only one major <laughs> into the season now, right? And who did Mark yeah. play? Mark played Spieth. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a good week. He's good. He's good. But you made up ground. So that's a that's a really good sign. But we have a number of designated events left. This thing's, this thing's far from over. Uh, I mean, you got to be like in your position. Yes, I do. And we have a designated event coming next week. And the First Cup podcast will be a great resource for your continued master's conversation, your RBC heritage, fantasy selections, mega preview pods, round by round recap. So we're going to continue that conversation anywhere you can get your podcast for now. Big thanks to Greg Ducharme, who you can find on Twitter at The Real GFD. And you can find me at Rick Run Good. This has been the First Cut Podcast. We'll catch you next time.